The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> it's probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds, you're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean, um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. Joining me this week, Hale Varsity's resident Phoenix Suns fan, Jacob Padilla. Jacob, hello. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Just kind of sitting around waiting for the game to tip off tonight as uh, we record here on a Thursday evening. Yeah, you uh, you you mandated that we record this podcast before tip off of game three. Like you just said, it's Thursday night when people are listening to this. Um, they probably will have already seen the result of game three as Jacob and I know it right now. The series is one one. Jacob. I don't know about you, but this has been the most entertaining and exciting series of the first round. This has actually been a really, uh, with the exception of the Boston-Brooklyn series, this has actually been a really good first round of the playoffs. But this series has absolutely lived up um, to the billing of it. I mean, obviously you have Phoenix and you have LA and everything that that those kind of two teams have have had historically in the playoffs kind of reigniting again with a different cast of characters. But this one has been so fun because of all of these different little like subplots that you have, there's the Chris Paul, like will the dude ever be able to go through a playoff healthy? Um, do you have that narrative? Then you have just like, there's just, it's just such a high level of basketball going on in these games. Um, there was a, there was a play in game two where like LeBron is getting doubled on the strong side. He's got, I think it, Dennis shooters in the dunker spot on the weak side. KCP is in the weak side corner. Alex Caruso is on the wing. LeBron sees the double come. He motions to Caruso to cut. Caruso cuts. KCP fills a spot on the wing. Uh, Schroeder kicks to the corner. The pass goes to KCP. He's wide open. He doesn't shoot it. And then you see in the timeout, LeBron is like, no, you need to shoot that. He's doing a little bit of coaching. So you've got that on one side. You've got whatever Phoenix is doing to get inside Anthony Davis's head and tell him to sit outside. You've got DeAndre Ayton playing really well growing up in front of people's eyes you've got the, the the larger nba public seeing this devin booker that for the first few years of his career everybody just thought he's a really good scorer on a really bad team and now everyone is seeing now this dude has an answer for every single thing you try to throw throw at him as a defense he's making all the right plays and he's not just a, a scorer and then you've got like lebron james's basketball mind on one side and you've got monty williams who is an excellent coach really really well on the other side, this series has just lived up to its billing, and I'm kind of sad that it's a first-round series. Uh, yeah, so that's the one thing, the, the fact that th- this is a conference uh, championship-level series in the first round, and it's because of the Laker injuries and with uh, the Lakers falling down to where they were in the standings. But it, as everything you just said is right, and as good as the series has been, it's just disappointing that we don't get to see both teams at full strength like you can tell obviously the Chris Paul thing is a massive bummer and it's going to 
be really tough for the Suns to overcome it if he can't be a factor out there outside of just a presence and moving the ball. If he can't use his right arm, then that is a, that is a serious problem. Uh, kind of a well problem for a guy who's right-hand dominant. <laughs> yes. Um, and for a guy that's as important to what the Suns are doing as he is. Um, so that that's the massive bummer. And like you said, just the luck that he's had, it looked like he, he spent the last two years healthy. He hardly missed a game. You think, all right, here's a chance. Now he's got a, he's got a real team around him. Let's go see what you can do. And in the first quarter of the first game or second, I forgot at what point he only played like eight minutes before it happened. It was really early. Uh, yeah. So, and just barely into the first game that happens, but then it's also to the point, game. it's to the point, sorry to interrupt you. It's to the yeah, point where I feel guilty as a Thunder fan, <laughs> wasting one of his only like fully healthy years with the team that, that we had last year. Like it was a decent team and we were okay, but I feel guilty as a Thunder fan wasting a good year of Chris Paul because he finally gets, like you said, on a team. Like, I think that the winner of this is going to win the West. I, I wouldn't be shocked by that. And, and just kind of continuing the first half, though, we can jump back to that. But, and then also LeBron, you can tell that he's not right. The dude can't turn the corner. Like, he is not scoring at the rim. It's all – everything he's doing now is just because he is a next-level basketball thinker, mm-hmm. and he's also hitting some ridiculous jump shots, which is what he did in game two. So, like, LeBron's not at full strength. Chris Paul is, isn't even close to full strength. Um, so those are two, obviously – massively important pieces for their respective teams and i I just wonder kind of i I would love to see the the kind of the chess game uh, the chess match with those guys at full strength operating at the peak of their their powers right now as as peak as they are at 36 years old or however they both are i hope Um, we get without knowing what happens in game three i hope we get seven in this series for one, because this series just deserves seven games because it's been that good of a series so far. And then for another, because Chris Paul's injury was called a stinger. It didn't seem to be terribly serious. So the longer this series goes, you think the better chance he has to be to be closer, as close to 100% as you can get him on yeah. the court. And so if we can get like Chris Paul for game like six and seven, like that'd be great. That'd be great theater. Yeah. Exactly. And that, it is kind of weird. Uh, so they took him off the injury report heading into game two entirely. And um, and then Monty Williams ended up having a poem in the game after 23 minutes or so because he just couldn't do it. And you can see how much pain he was in. And it seemed like a situation where, uh, based on what Monty said after the game, kind of post-game press conference or whatever, he looked pretty good in their shoot-around. So that he struggled that much was kind of a surprise to them. And I don't think... And, and that's where the, the fourth quarter stuff, I think, really showed up where the Suns didn't really have a great plan B. Guys weren't ready to play the way they needed to without Chris being an option there in those moments. And you can see they, they battle all the way back to take the lead. But then down the stretch, they just could not execute in, in the clutch. And obviously, that's where Chris has been the guy. Um, and they did much better job of that in game one. Um, I, I think having... Having him like think, I think that Monty thought he was going to get more out of Chris than he was going into game two the way he looked, and then they weren't ready when that didn't happen. So hopefully, heading into game three, um, he's he's playing. He uh, they put him on there as probable and already guarantees not even a game time decision. Which I there was some discussion about him sitting trying to get healthy for game four. Um, as long as he's able to capable of playing and not making it worse, there was no way you were going to 
keep him off the court. Like, that's just who he is. But hopefully it is a situation where he, he looks much better than he did last game, that you can work towards that close to full strength in game four, game five, um, and to, to be able to really extend the series. Because, I mean, even without Chris Paul being Chris Paul, again, the Suns battled back to take the lead in that game. And they had some things go during that game not go their way that very easily could in another game, whether some in their control, some of it not. Um, like if they, if Mikhail and Jay Crowder start hitting some shots, which they haven't really done a ton of, uh, mostly Jay, but like Suns have not played that that well as a whole, but they, they play so well together and they're so tough and they don't give up that they were able to get back into that game despite guys not playing well. So hopefully we can get to the point where Chris gives them enough to where everybody else can step up and we can really see these teams go back and forth. Jay is the other interesting subplot to me because once again, on a big stage, he's showing what value he can provide to a team that has title aspirations. This like just continues to be the case with this dude. I mean, he was instrumental in Miami going to the finals. And I mean, if, if Phoenix makes a deep run, it's going to be because Jay Crowder played a key part in that. And this, I, I, I guess it's just because he's always had a really good contract and he's a good player. So you can get something for him by trading him, but like no team wants him. Like he just keeps getting passed around and he's really good for the teams that he gets given to. And then they're like, okay, we're done with you. We're going to give you to someone else to get something for you. And it's like, no, you had a good player in Jay Crowder. Just keep what you got. Yeah. So he, yeah, he has got, that was a big uh, storyline from game two is the early foul trouble. He's got to stay on the court and hopefully if he's able to stay on the court, the shot can start falling. He can be even more impactful because what he's doing defensively right now has been a huge part of, limiting Anthony Davis and the overall defensive effectiveness of the Suns. Yeah, really. It just, it's, it's high level basketball. So it's been fun to watch a couple of Nebraska things to note. Um, the Hill varsity staff. So Jacob included and myself, we've wrapped uh, first drafts, I guess, of our yearbook stories. I'm really excited about where mine's at. I'm sure Jacob is really, I haven't seen Jacobs. I'm sure he's really excited about where his is at. Um, that is coming up soon. So make sure that you get subscribed to Hill Varsity so that you can secure your copy of the yearbook. Go to hillvarsity.com backslash subscribe to make sure. Again, you don't want to miss the yearbook. The yearbook is awesome. It's the best thing that we do every single year. Every single year, I come out of it thinking this is the best thing we've ever created. And I have no doubt that the same thing will happen again this year. So make sure you get to hillvarsity.com backslash subscribe and secure your copy of the yearbook. So that's number one. Number two, baseball won a Big Ten title last weekend. And um, I had a column on HaleVarsity.com about just Bolt uh, last weekend about, I don't think Bolt Ball is going anywhere anytime soon. They are a joy to watch as a team. Um, and I'm sure that they are super easy to root for. They do all of the things that you that, 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 a, that a fan wants to see in their team. Bolt is awesome. He's a great guy. When he got to Nebraska a couple months afterwards, I got to sit down and talk with him a little bit. Um, he's awesome. I think Nebraska baseball, as long as Will Bolt is here, has the chance to be a, a fixture in the Big Ten Conference moving forward and not just sort of a flash in the pan kind of thing like this season. I think that they could be a special team just with the the way that they're playing, the way he has them playing and and sort of melding what he inherited with what he was able to add to the team. So kudos to them, shouts to them, congrats to Will Bolt. Please 
stop directing hate at Scott Frost for Will Bolt's success. Don't do that. I don't understand it. They're two different situations, which I guess is sort of a segue, Jacob, into what we're going to talk about today. Um, the CBS Sports crew ranked all of the the Power Five head football coaches recently. Um, so 64 plus Notre Dame's Brian Kelly. Scott Frost came in at number 47 in that ranking as the 11th coach in the Big Ten. Brett Bielema was ahead of him at Illinois at 42. Greg Schiano was ahead of him at Rutgers at number 34. Uh, there were eight Big Ten coaches in the top 25, four from the East, four from the West. This is, uh, this is a really tough conference to play in. This is a really tough conference to coach in. I think people are starting to catch on to the latter point. Pat Fitzgerald was number nine in this ranking. Um, so he's finally starting to get some of the respect that he has been due for years and years and years. He's been criminally underrated for a long time. Um, we can go a number of different directions with this because we also got a question in our mailbag this week that we're going to talk about who is sort of most at danger of coming under the gun if they have a, a bad showing um, in the Big Ten. So we can we can go a number of different directions with this. Jacob, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Scott Frost as the 47th ranked head coach at the, at the power five level? Do you want to start with uh, who's potentially getting the ax if they have a bad season? Where do you want to start with, with this coaching discussion? We can start with the frost thing. And yeah, it's, I, I think you, you, I did read the, what you wrote there. And um, was it 20 some spots he's dropped in two years uh, in, in the rankings? Yeah. 22 spots. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and on the one hand, it's like that, that's a bit, uh, aggressive, you would think, but on the other, and the way it's not just the fact that Nebraska hasn't won, it's the fact that a lot of the ways that or the reasons they're losing, you could put on coaching. And a lot of the things that have gone wrong, they, they've had some really bad luck. Um, I think they've, uh, I don't think the program is as bad, uh, as the, the, the overall record shows. Like, I think there, there are a couple there's real close to a couple of things flipping and going the other way. They just haven't been able to actually make that flip and that falls back on coaching. So it's, it's pretty fair. I think um, to, to have him dropping just based on what he's done at Nebraska. The question is, has he learned from the mistakes over the last two, three years? And can he start building it back up and fixing the things that have gone wrong? Cause then I, I think if he's able to get back on track, he'll rise right back up because you've got the, the background of being successful and having that, that UCF year that I think will pop back up in their minds. If Frost can finally start to have some success here and get the ship turned around. Yeah. It's interesting because so if he's 47 now and he's dropped 22 spots in two years, that means coming off of the UCF 13 and 0 unbeaten season, they beat Auburn in the, the peach bowl, Chick-fil-A peach bowl. Um, he was a top 25 coach viewed as a top 25 coach. I think most people, when he, when he, agreed to come back to Nebraska would have called him a top 25 coach in the country. Um, definitely on the, the lower echelon. He's not, he's not in the top 10. He wasn't close to the top 10. He's obviously not anywhere within the stratosphere of the top 10 right now, but um, it's always interesting when you have situations like this, because guys, it's not like he forgot how to coach. It's not like he just left all of his ability in Orlando when he decided to pack up. And it's not like he like forgot to pack his coaching ability when he, when he came from Orlando and, and drove to Lincoln or flew to Lincoln or whatever it was. So 
and I, and you're right in, in in saying that their team, from a talent perspective, um, is not a 12 and 20 team, which is his record over his first three years. It's not. I don't. I don't think it's that bad. Um, feel. I guess feel free to disagree with me, but at the same time. I mean, you're 12 and 20 and like what we were just talking about with Bolt, like he's got like the senior class that he just won a big 10 title with. They won a big 10 title in 2017. So those, those dudes have been around for a long time. So those are guys that he inherited and made it work with. And probably one of the the biggest knocks on frost is his inability to make it work with what he got. Um, the, the discussion has raged for four years that Frost wasn't left with a good situation, that Frost wasn't left with a good team, that the cupboard was bare, whatever you want to call it, whatever metaphor you want to use, which I think, you know, I mean, if you're comparing situations, yes, Bolt walked into a significantly better situation than Frost. Frost didn't walk into a good situation either with his locker room. They weren't squatting. Or just the fact that he has to play Ohio State and Michigan every single year. Um, but I mean, like sometimes you just got to make it work with what you have and Frost hasn't been able to do that. And that's a big part of coaching. Well, and the fact too, that on top of that, it's not like he's had a bunch of guys that they brought in and have had instant success. Like, so like you can look at, oh yeah, what he has inherited, but he's brought a lot of guys in the program and very few of them have had more success or have been more productive players than the guys he inherited. So I don't put it in, it wasn't in a great spot, obviously, but uh, Central Florida wasn't in a great spot. Obviously, I mean, the the situation there um, was probably not as bad as it looked going 0-12 in terms of the the talent base um, on the team and the the ability to recruit to fix it quickly. So he was able to go from zero wins to to six and then 12 or whatever uh, in in two years. So, um, but so it, yeah, it's not entirely like he's what they're doing isn't a result of just not having any talent, I think. Um, and especially because we're seeing now, so, I mean, a lot of the guys they inherited, they've locked up positions long term. We see Brendan Hymas just got um, just got drafted. Um, you've got uh, a, a few guys getting ready to, to look to earn jobs in the NFL that were from the previous staff and that were longtime starters. So. Yeah, I mean, it's, Lamar Jackson is a yeah. starter at corner yep. for the Jets. DiCaprio Boodle could could have a decent NFL career, probably will have a decent NFL career. Khalil Davis was on a Super Bowl winner as a as a participant for that yeah. team. There, there, were, there were a lot of guys from, from the Riley era that are in the NFL playing. Nick Gates is a starter at center for the freaking New York Giants. Yeah. So I think there's been a little bit they, – they just struggled to get it all working together, everything clicking on the same page where – in some areas of development has been good, but in not enough areas. And in some areas you've had some guys come in and make early impacts, but not enough. So, and you've obviously had all the attrition. We can talk about that. Um, that's played into it as well, but they just struggled to build up enough talent throughout the entire roster. And I, I think that's where they because again, they do things well in certain areas. They're, they're playing well. Um, you look at different areas on the defense. There's a couple things on offense that they they've shown some promise in. They just haven't been able to put it all together and then do the little things um, to, to get over the hump and actually win a lot of these games that they're in. So one of the biggest issues that Frost has had, and this this goes against 
um, you know, his, his standing in a, in a, in a ranking like this of, of coaches. One of the biggest issues they've had is that his first two recruiting classes added absolutely nothing in terms of skill talent. So the running back position has been really hit or miss. They had Maurice Washington. It flamed out. It's not, they took a risk on him, but it flaming out isn't really a, a product of them not knowing how to coach. So that one's kind of, you know, you just shrug, you just shrugged your shoulders. That's what you got to do. You just shrug your shoulders. Um, the wide receiver thing though. And I, when we, I wrapped up the taking stock series with a look at the wide receivers and a note that I included in there in the 2018 class, which was Frost's first, which was the transition class. So people don't want to hold his feet to the fire for it. It's fine. Nebraska added five players who would play wide out. They got a sixth, uh, signature from Dominic Watt, but he never arrived. The 2019 class, they added four more wideouts as recruits, and then they got a transfer from Conovai Noah as a grad transfer. So 11 guys signed, 10 guys added to the roster at wide receiver just in two classes. Here's what they got from those 10 guys. Wandale Robinson had 91 catches for 914 yards and three touchdowns in his two seasons. He transferred. Conovai Noah in one year had 17 catches for 245 yards and two scores. And that was his only year of eligibility in Lincoln. So I, it's not bad, but he was a starter that played a lot of snaps for them. So, And, and his catch rate wasn't great. You look at his targets versus catches. Yeah, it was um, not great. Yeah. And, and Underwhelming. They, yeah, underwhelming. That's a good one. They asked him to play that sort of deep threat role, um, sort of fill the, the Stanley Morgan role with JD and Wandale underneath. And it, it wasn't, it was underwhelming. That's a really good way to put it. He was um, a slot receiver and they had five slot receivers. He just happened to be the tallest one. So yes, you, you get to split out wide. <laughs> this is the problem. This is, and I said this when they signed all of these yeah. dudes was yep. positional, um, positional redundancy. They just had, yep. they signed the exact same player over and over and over again. Um, Mike Williams, again, the same kind of player. And, and they asked him to play outside and, and he has, he has publicly said since he left that he was asked to play out of position. He was asked to play a position he wasn't comfortable with. So he's a junior college take in 2018. Um, in two seasons, he had 17 catches for 231 yards and zero scores. So production from Wando Robinson and then scarce production, underwhelming production from two other guys. The other seven receivers that were signed and brought to campus contributed a total of six receptions for 53 yards. <laughs> seven receivers contributed six receptions for 53 yards. Now you're saying, oh, well, there's a 2018 and 2019 guys, so they're only like two or three, three years into their career. Well, Williams... Mike Williams and Conovai Noah are the only two receivers added in the 2018 or 2019 class that either finished or will finish their playing career in Lincoln. The other eight have all transferred to other schools. Yep. That will kill you. Oh, yeah. And it has. Yeah, and that's why we are where we are now. Where, And they've done good work to reshape the room and fix the positional redundancy thing we talked about. Um, just in terms of body types and skill sets, they've got a more varied group of ca pass catchers now. But we're still kind of waiting to see if they can do it, actually translate all right, what we think they can do to doing it on the field. So we're because we've missed all that, uh, missed that out on all those guys that they brought in the last two classes, we needed these guys to step up last year, and all these guys weren't really ready for it. Omar Manning wasn't ready for it. Uh, Xavier Betts wasn't ready for it. Alante Brown weren't ready for it. 
Like we, we're excited about the talent they brought in, but they were all newcomers last year for the most part. Uh, you still had Cade Warner as a captain starting until he started giving away his, his snaps later in the season. You've still got Wyatt Lever out there as a walk-on. You've got guys like that. Um, Oliver Martin, uh, it was in such a bad spot. He started playing almost immediately despite not knowing what he was doing out there. And mm-hmm. the coaches, and he said he, he didn't, really, didn't really know the playbook, but he started the last five games or whatever it was just because they didn't have better options. So hopefully um, they, that, that learning experience can translate to them actually being able to kind of figure it out and be – uh, significant um, contributors this next season, but because of all those misses, it left them in a spot where there was nobody they could rely on to the point where they kind of had to over rely on Wandale Robinson in a variety of roles. And mm-hmm. because of the lack of, um, I think field stretching ability and kind of some of the other options out there, they weren't able to maximize him either, despite giving him like force feeding him, they weren't doing it in an efficient manner. And, um, and I think a lot of that was a result of the other guys out there and not, not really having other dynamic threats. So, um, hopefully obviously you're lo- you lost Wandale. So that's the one known thing that you, you had is gone now. So it's almost completely unknown. Um, we're hearing good things about so many of the guys, but, uh, until they actually go out and prove it on the field, you can't really count on anything for sure. So here is sort of the, the key question as it relates to, what they've been able to do at wide receiver, because you look at those first two classes and it's a lot of the same player that is, that is being targeted, that is being signed. You look at the last two classes and there's a bit more versatility. There's the Omar Mannings and the Samori Torres and the Latrell Nevels. But then there's also still like the Will Nixon, the Alante Brown, those kind of guys. Um, So uh, the key question facing this coaching staff and facing Frost in particular is, was it was was those first two classes those first two crops of wide receivers skill talent whatever because they had a couple of problems that they had to adjust with at other positions from a recruiting standpoint as well the first two classes was that just a learning experience for a young staff an adjustment period for a young staff moving to a new conference that is a lot different from the american that they cut their teeth in uh that's a little bit more encouraging if, if that's the case, or is it just that there's, there's just, they're just going to have misses on the trail and that's just the way it's going to be. Which do you, which do you think it is? I mean, well, we're going to learn a lot about it this year. This year is going to go a long way towards giving us some clarity to that, but which do you think it is? Well, I think, I mean, the fact that they made a coaching change at that specific position, the, the wide receiver coach position, offensive corner, whatever. Um, like, I think that, signified that yeah it, it wasn't they weren't getting it done whether it's development whether it's recruiting and obviously the way the staff recruits everybody has their regions um more so than you're going to have the wide receivers coach on every wide receiver but i don't i think these guys uh probably work together well enough to where yeah y- y- you see a kid you like but you're going to show into the position coaches uh going to show the film to the position coach and see uh, if he signs off on it and then you'll go ahead and be more aggressive with your recruiting. Um, so I, I think the fact that they made a change there, they recognize, hey, this isn't working. Um, we got to figure something out. Now we'll see kind of, um, I think this, this class right now, Matt Lubick's uh, impact will start to feel it with both with the development and with the recruiting with this, the guys that are going to be freshmen this year 
and the guys that are going to be coming in. Um, now we start to see, all right, have they kind of shifted that to where uh, they're going to have a higher hit rate? Because they're, they're always going to be misses, obviously. That's, that's how recruiting works. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the fact that you laid out how much uh, of how it was almost entirely a miss rate um, from the, these first few classes. So that is what they cannot afford. So we, they're going to need uh, Xavier Betts, especially. A guy like Xavier Betts is going to be huge just for not only for the team, but for the recruiting efforts and their ability to make inroads in Omaha. Like you need that guy to come down to Lincoln and to live up to the potential that so many see for him. And hopefully what, he doesn't need to be a starter catching 40 balls this year, but he's got to be a, a steady piece that is out there playing regularly and making a few big plays and then maybe build towards the next year where he can kind of step into a star, kind of a starring role. So that's, that's what has to, you just have to have guys that you can count on to produce this year. You might say that their effective field goal percentage was trash their first two years. I got Jacob to laugh on the Zoom. That is a deep inside joke that nobody else listening to this podcast will understand. Oh. Uh, so hey, maybe Christian or Greg will listen. Maybe I don't think Christian listens to my podcast, and Greg is like two or three weeks behind. Plus, Greg is also leaving, so he ain't going to be doing anything for a while. That's, that's true for like the weekend or whatever. Um, let's transition to the mailbag topic for a second. Uh, because I thought your response was particularly interesting. So the question that we got was which football coach in the big 10 is most in danger of being let go after next season. So I I said in the beginning, I think this is top to bottom. This is one of the best conferences in terms of coaching, in terms of coaching ability. That being said, there have been coaches that have underwhelmed. Uh, Lovey Smith got fired at Illinois because he was underperforming. And Perhaps Jeff Brom is on the hot seat at Purdue or close to it. Perhaps Jim Harbaugh is close to it because he's underperforming. Perhaps even Scott Frost is close to it, depending on if you're talking to Bill Moose or if you're talking to Pat Forty. Um, so the, the question was, which coaches in the Big Ten are most in danger of being let go? Jacob, your response started out, if I had to bet on the over-under of 0.5 Big Ten coaches getting fired after this season, I'd take the under. Those, those are your words. So nobody's losing their job after this season. Why do you think that is? I, I came into that question not like I didn't have fully fleshed out thoughts on it, but as I read Brandon, uh, Brandon's response, he kind of laid it out perfectly and just the timing of when this happens, where the ones that were in trouble, they all got fired last year uh, within the last year or two. So you've got Mike Loxley at Maryland what are the chances they get rid of him already? Like you just made that higher. Do you want me to kind of, of, do you want me to kind of paraphrase how Brandon laid it out? Yeah. That, that go ahead. Yeah. Cause, and Loxley too is yeah. recruiting pretty well. So, yeah. um, so Brandon puts it out. Rutgers, Maryland, Michigan state are all too early. They just made hires. Like Jacob just pointed out, Illinois has a first year head coach. They just made a hire, Indiana, Iowa, Minnesota, Northwestern, Ohio state, Penn state, and Wisconsin as Brandon writes, and as I'm sure Jacob agrees, and I agree as well, are happy with their current state or should be able to say that, which leaves three schools, Michigan, Nebraska, and Purdue. He writes that Jim Harbaugh just signed a five-year extension. So that one would be interesting. Uh, Scott Frost's boss says no. And Purdue is, 
I, I guess by default, like the only one that's sort of up in the air. So there you go. There's the field continue. And I, I think the, Brandon was right. Like if Purdue moves on from Jeff Brom, who are they going to get? That's bad. And that's always like, you never want to go, well, who are we going to get question? But it's legitimate here because he's produced the best results that that school has had since like Drew Brees was playing there or whatever. Like it's been a long time since uh, Purdue had consistent success and Brahm's first couple years were better than his last couple last year or whatever. Um, so not necessarily trending in the right direction and he won't have the job forever. But again, I think this last COVID year too, for a lot of the, like you can, for a program like that, like Purdue where, Two and four during the COVID year, they did they they weren't even able to play the full games. Um, they only got six games in. Um, obviously, the Rondale Moore situation was kind of weird. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that Purdue's brass is going to hold that last season against them. And so, I mean, if, if anybody goes over wins one game, wins two games, like even Frost, like if Nebraska goes out and wins one game this year, they'd have a hard time justifying not doing something, right? Yep. And that, that'd be the case for anybody. Like if you're that bad, then all bets are off. But I don't think, I don't really see that happening. And I think Purdue, because of the success Brahm has had and kind of the, the goodwill that he built up early in his career there, um, I, I could see him, event, Purdue eventually letting him go, but I don't think they'd do it this quickly. Um, so, and then the, the Minnesota, or Minnesota, Michigan situation, it's just kind of awkward, and I really don't know how that's going to end, but the fact that they went through, and both sides kind of went through the, the process of extending and restructuring the contract where uh, Harbaugh is making significantly less now than he was previously, but they did add on the extra years. So it seems like, I, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see him leave at any point. Um, I just, I don't know that after going through those efforts, that I guess I haven't studied the, the buyout situation or whatever and how that changed or whatever, but I don't know that Michigan would go through those, that, that the effort of redoing the contract, all that, if they were that close to firing him. Um, and I guess I, I haven't really studied kind of the talent level coming back, kind of how good Michigan is supposed to be this year. Again, last year was weird for everybody. They went two and four, um, but or two and four within the conference, obviously, and that's how we got to play. But so it's, I don't know. It's just kind of. I think next year, after this past year, I think that's when when Harbaugh, when Brom, when Frost, I think that's when it really starts to ramp up, where you can really see a lot of hot seat movement. I just think the ones that are close, the moves were already made the last two years, and this might be a kind of a gap year between when um, we get um, some real hot seat action. Yeah. Yeah. 22. You're, you're probably right in, in saying that 22 is, is probably the, the one where the, the trigger gets a little bit closer to being pulled for some of these. Um, Harbaugh, I just looked it up. Harbaugh's buyout. If Michigan fires him in 2021, it's 4 million. And then with each subsequent year, it drops a million gets taken off. Um, his, his buyout that he would owe Michigan, if he were to leave in 2021 would be 2 million and it would drop by 500,000 with each subsequent year. So maybe he could find an NFL gig that wants to pay that buyout and then pay him a little bit extra to come be their coach, maybe. And, and maybe Michigan is 
is cool with that and wipes their hands at that and says, all right, time to, to move on with something else. <laughs> Are you watching my dog on the zoom? <laughs> I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's been crazy today. Um, maybe, maybe it's one of those like amicable parting of ways yeah. where Harbaugh is like, I can go back to the NFL. Cool. And Michigan is like, cool. We can, we can do this without suffering through the reputational blow of having to fire an alum. Um, the other side of it, if you let's, let's just, you are Michigan's athletic director. It is December 31st. The, the, the extension and restructuring was announced on January 8th. Um, it's December 31st. You are Michigan's athletic director. You are having this conversation. Do you want to do this deal? Or would you have just said, no, this is, this is your last season. Prove it. Yeah. That, that's why it's so awkward because I, it's just kind of not working. And obviously the bar is incredibly high for Michigan specifically because they've been one of the best teams in the conference. They built top 20 teams several times over the last handful of years. They just ne- never been able to get over the Ohio state hump. And that doesn't mean that Harbor Harbaugh is a bad coach or whatever. Um, like he's clearly done some things very well there. Uh, but um, it is kind of getting awkward there. Just the fact that it, they, it seems to have stalled a little bit there. I don't yeah. know that the bar is super high. I'll, I'll push back against that. I don't know that the bar is super high. The bar for them is probably like, don't lose. What is it? Eight straight or seven straight games yeah. to Ohio state. Like win one of those or maybe two of those. And I think they've lost four or five straight bowl games. Like, I think that's the bar. Like, I think don't yeah, yeah. be terrible in the games that matter. That, that And that's entirely fair. And you're absolutely right. I'm not trying to, bail out uh harbaugh entirely or anything there Um, no you're you're a harbaugh defender you're a harbaugh (laughs) defender nope we've established Uh, this now but i mean so he they went through some significant staff changes i believe um replace some some key assistants i think um obviously they went through the extension i like you said they don't want to fire him because of who he is Mm -hmm. and the fact that he has had some success like he all the things that I said, like they, they put together some really good teams during this stretch. They just haven't been able to get over the hump. Um, and he just fired Don Brown, which is pretty good, pretty good indicator that he's willing to and open to change. And, and that's exactly kind of what I was referring to there with some yep. of the significant staff changes. And yep. um, so it's kind of, it seems like both sides are willing to make it work or try to make it work, but they're also making it easier for them to part in the next couple of years, if it doesn't work out. So I think this is, I think that's kind of what you don't often see situations like this, where coaches will accept a a significant pay cut. And while the school will hand out an extension as part of that, it's kind of a, I can't really, I, I don't pay super close attention to college football as a whole to this degree, but I can't really think, uh, recently of anybody that's any other situations like this where it just seems like, like you said, either they let it, they leave them, let them go into a lame duck year or they just make the fire or you know what, we're going to, we're going to invest here and give out the extension. It's not often that you see them kind of working like this. I don't think. And to Michigan's credit programs that let a coach go into the quote unquote lame duck year, it, 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 it pretty easily, um, 
foretells bad things happening. Like yeah. if you're a coach going into that kind of year where it's like the school doesn't want to commit to you and you're like, well, turn it around or you're gone. Like nine times out of 10, you're gone already. Yeah. Like, it's just a matter of, you know, I mean, we saw this with Mike Riley, like it, that's just what happens. Um, Brom is, is interesting to me just in the sense that he, he was like the classic you, um, you, you play your big card too early. Like they won eight games total in the three years before he gets there. And then he wins seven in his first year. And it's like, Oh, okay. This is the bar. Now this is the expectation at Purdue. Now we should be going to a bowl game every year. And then he goes six and seven. And then he goes four and eight and the two and eight year last year. And like for him, like you look at the talent that he's been able to bring to West Lafayette. And I, and I know Rondell Moore had, injury issues it was a problem trying to you know just being able to keep him on the field but you look at you brought Rondo Moore to West Lafayette you got David Bell you got the George Karloftis kid on the defensive line their big thing is they haven't had consistent enough quarterback play and part of that too is injuries but yeah yeah. um but I mean that that the the two guys that are probably going to be put on the hot seat by national writers if they have bad seasons would be Frost and Brom and both of them have had inconsistent quarterback play Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see. You also wrote in your mailbag response that, uh, you don't see Nebraska and Frost getting to that point this season. I would agree with you on that. So let's just hope no one in 11 season happens. Oh boy. That would be so bad. That'd be chaos because if we're not even, no, we're not even going to do that. Nope. We're not even going to do that. Okay. Back-to-back seven-win basketball season was enough for me. Please, <laughs> please make some progress, both, both programs. That's all I'm asking you. Make progress. You don't, <laughs> you don't need to win conference titles or anything. I just want to cover winning sports. That's, that's all I ask for. Are you Now that Bolt has won a Big Ten title, are you happy to not have to field the, well, who will win a Big Ten championship first? Will <laughs> Bolt, Scott Frost, or Fred Hoiberg? Are you happy to not have that question anymore? Well, they're just reshaping it. Like we got in the mailbag is like, all right, so Bolt's done it. So which of these other guys is going to make the leap? So the question isn't going any, uh, isn't going away. It's just getting, I think, restructured. I, I, I'll tell you though, not, not that they care, but Frost and Hoiberg now, I mean, it's going to be a race to see who can do it. Cause you don't want to be the last one that does it. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be the last one standing there without any hardware and be like, your peers are looking at you like, Hey man, we got ours. Well, Step your and, game up. And they're both kind of in a place where, like, uh, the football schedule, whatever, and coming off of it, you don't know quite what kind of elite to expect, but they're both in a situation where, like, all right, it's setting up for kind of a now or never situation. Like, if you can't actually win with this, what can you win with? With those seniors coming back on defense, having a fourth-year starting quarterback, um, having the, the, the receiver options, at least. I mean, they got to go approve it, but you've got talent there at least. Um, mm-hmm. And then in basketball, bringing in combination of the most continuity Hoiberg's had, heck, even going back to some of his Iowa State years with the guys I've got coming back, plus adding the best recruiting class in, in program history led by a five-star. Like, if he can't turn the corner here and actually get become competitive in the Big Ten um, this year, like, it's going to be tough to maintain that recruiting um, momentum. So it's going to be a big year for both programs. They both need to take a step forward 
in it in order for them to long term kind of get to where they want to go. For sure. Jacob, it's it's T minus uh seventy five minutes before coverage starts for Phoenix LA. So just enough time for you to go get Phoenix Suns jersey on, get your eye paint all done up, get the the mismatched orange and purple on your face. Got your Phoenix shirt already. You gotta put the jersey over it. I'll give you just enough time to get ready for get your war paint on for this game. Thank you for joining the podcast, man. Thanks for having me. We will be back next week with another one. In the meantime, keep reading HaleVarsity.com. Like I said in the beginning, subscribe to the magazine. Get the yearbook. You don't want to miss it. Follow Jacob on Twitter. Is it at Jacob underscore Padilla? Jacob Padilla underscore. Padilla underscore. Yep. Do it. And we'll be back next week. Thanks, guys. Hoda Media Production.